Good morning, everybody. Periodically, I get the opportunity to preach, and I decided that I would dress a little different than I sometimes dress when I lead worship, right? So then I come in, and every once in a while, these people will say, man, you look sharp today. And I'm like, this means that I probably look like some kind of dirt bag every other day or when I'm up here playing. <laughs> Maybe I need to think about that too. Um, but my name is Maddie. I'm the worship pastor for Legacy. So I wanna thank you guys for being here. We're glad to see everybody. Hello to everybody who's watching online as well. We're glad you decided to join us on this rainy day. Uh, today, we're gonna continue in our series on the post-resurrection story of Jesus and some of these events that we see in scripture um, that that show what happened immediately after the resurrection. They have a lot of interesting lessons that they can teach us. Um, but I wanted to start with a little story. So when I was in the Air Force, I was in this group that, that toured around. We did music shows all over the place. And one of them was in South Dakota. And I was really excited because since we were in South Dakota near this Air Force base, I was finally gonna have the opportunity to see Mount Rushmore. And who's heard of Mount Rushmore? I hope everybody raises their hand, right? It's that the mountain with the faces of the presidents carved on it. And I've seen pictures of it. You know, we've seen it in books, seen it on television, all over the place. And it's, you just see these, these images of these massive heads of the presidents, right? So I just can't wait to go see this. And finally, we take our trip to, to Mount Rushmore. And I think I even have a picture somewhere, but I didn't have a chance to find it. Um, who's been there? And wasn't it to Mount, where? What do you mean where? <laughs> um, all right, I'm gonna run back the introduction. No, just kidding. <laughs> so, so you get to Mount Rushmore and the faces are so much smaller than you thought that they would be. I mean, it's still a mountain, but like I pictured these things as being massive. And when I saw them, it just wasn't what I was expecting. We'll talk about that here in just a second. But the passage that we're gonna be looking at today is the story of the road to Emmaus. And this is in Luke chapter 24. And we're gonna look at verses 13 through 32. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I'm gonna read the whole thing to start. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have Bibles out in the lobby. So if you're, if you're relying on your phone, get a paper Bible. We've got them to give to you. So this starts uh, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, 
O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with him, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So that's our passage for today. So as we start, let's, let's go back and get a little bit of context for what's going on here. So these two travelers, um, the story is taking place on Sunday, right? The day, the day that Jesus had, had arose, just a few days after his crucifixion. And this had been a massive week in Jerusalem, right? So much stuff is going on. You know, it started on Monday with the triumphal entry. Jesus is doing so much. He's cleansing the temple. He's teaching everywhere. He's doing miracles. Then he had his, his show trial. And then the crucifixion on Friday. And then the resurrection, this very day that we're talking about. So this week is, is something that could be described as the highest of highs, and it comes down to the lowest of lows, right? The promised Messiah had arrived. He had come to Jerusalem. He had showed up just like everybody was expecting. The people that were there, the pilgrims that came, the people that were following him were so excited. But then it all came to an abrupt halt, right? It just stopped. Tragedy. Jesus was murdered. So this was all over. They even went to check out the tomb because they heard that he was alive, but he wasn't there, so they didn't see him. I imagine these guys were probably devastated, right? Like, how much does this shake the foundation of your worldview for something like this to happen? They don't know what's going on. They're, they're basically feeling defeated, so they start to head home. Um, they're going back to a small town called Emmaus. We don't really know a whole lot about Emmaus. This is basically the only mention of Emmaus in the scripture. Uh, we only know it because Luke tells us about it. Um, but they're coming from Jerusalem, and Luke tells us it's about seven miles. So they probably have a couple hours that they're going to walk. So this, this story, I wanted to highlight three different aspects of it. I want to talk about what the story teaches us about ourselves, what the story teaches us about Jesus, and what the story teaches us about Scripture. So we'll start with what this teaches us about ourselves and I hesitate to do this, right, because none of us need any encouragement to think about ourselves more. Like we're constantly thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about our preferences, what we want, what we want to do, what we like, what we don't like. And Scripture is all about God's work. Scripture is not about our lives or our work. It's about what God has done. And even more, it's centered on Jesus and the work that he's done, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit too, right? But what this teaches us is that a lot of times we tend to impose our own expectations onto circumstances, right? Like I think about my trip to Mount Rushmore. The reason I was a little disappointed is because I expected something else, right? Like the reality is what it is. It doesn't matter what I want it to be or what I think it is. Um, and that's, that's kind of what these two gentlemen on the road to Emmaus were doing. Like they were so disappointed because 
in their world, in their mind, they expected Jesus to be the Messiah, which he was, but to come and to triumphantly liberate Israel. But not only in a spiritual sense, like the belief was that he was gonna come and he was gonna take out their enemies, right? He was gonna come as a king. He was gonna reign triumphantly on a throne over Israel and everything was gonna be great. But that's not what happened. He showed up. He taught, he did miracles. He did all these things that a Messiah was supposed to do. But then they killed him. Uh, The disciples were disappointed. John MacArthur said this. He said, they had no room for the death of Christ in their theology. And when Jesus was crucified, it confounded them not only because he died, but because their leaders killed him. How could this possibly be? And they used the Romans as the executioners. Now, the issue here is not the fact that the scriptures didn't teach this. It's more about the fact that they didn't pay attention or that's a part of the scripture that they didn't wanna see, that they didn't wanna believe. It's all there. Um, so, So this comes down to the issue of placing more value on the temporal outcomes of our life, on what's going on in our world right now than understanding what the spiritual significance of this is. Uh, J.C. Ryle said this of the two disciples. He said, a temporal redemption of the Jews by a conqueror appears to have been the redemption which they looked for. A spiritual redemption by a sacrificial death was an idea which their minds could not thoroughly take in. In fact, they may not, may not have even believed in a resurrection, right? So they, they see what's going on, they see what's happening in their life right now, only what's right in front of them, not what's in the scripture, not what the bigger meaning of this is. You know, how often does that happen to us too? So what immediately comes to your mind when you read the words of 2 Corinthians 1.20? That verse says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So it takes not only a familiarity with the truths of scripture, but also an understanding of the promises of who God is to grasp the truth of this, right? But this is a lot harder than it needs to be. One, because we all have this selfish, sinful nature inside of us. Uh, It's just inherent to who we are. We know this, this is in the scripture. But also because that selfish nature is really easy to manipulate. Um, And it's being manipulated all the time. Like we know the world is manipulating it, right? That's not news. But the commercialization of Christianity and of church is also manipulating us as well. from churches to contemporary books to music. Like this has become a cottage industry and all these, all these folks, uh, go, and, and maybe they're not all doing it for negative reasons, like I don't wanna put that out there, but, but this is happening. But if you feel good, you'll keep pumping money into this stuff, right? You buy a book and you finish it and you're like, yeah, life is good, life is good. You hear a song, Jesus got a plan for me makes you feel good, right? And unfortunately, there are churches who, who fill their seats by only telling you the stuff you wanna hear. Um, and, and some of those churches are big. you know. So the quickest way to make you feel good is to tell you that being a Christian will make your life better, am I right? 
tell you that if you follow Jesus, everything is gonna be better for you. And I told this to Restore recently, and, and that's true, right? That's not a lie, but <laughs> it doesn't always mean that your life is gonna be good right now. Your life is gonna be immeasurably better, indescribably better on an eternal scale. But I'd be willing to bet that there's probably more than a few people in this room right now who are going through something that they would rather not be going through. And, and I wanna tell you too, that just because you're struggling, just because you're going through something, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're not believing hard enough. And it doesn't mean that God is not there. Let's go to the scripture for a minute and see what it has to say about this. Matthew 16, 24 says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denying yourself can mean any number of things. It means that things don't always go the way that you want them to and that your life is not always gonna look the way that you want it to. Luke 9, 23 is basically the same thing. Uh, in Luke 14, 27, Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33 says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. John 12, 25 says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now again, like none of this is telling you that your life is gonna be bad all the time. None of it's telling you that it's gonna be a constant struggle and every day is gonna be horrible, but it's telling you that the promise of God is not that follow Jesus and everything will be 100% awesome all the time. And when you read scripture, you see that this is the truth. Scripture is the promise of God, but what is the promise of God? It's that we've been given redemption and eternal life through the blood of Jesus. So, and there's a picture of that promise in Revelation 21 verses one through four that says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So that's a promise. But look what's contained inside that promise. There is mourning, there's crying, there's pain. All those things are there, and all those are the things that Jesus is taking away in heaven. So, I know that I see a little bit of myself in the disciples, like in their disappointment, right? Because they don't understand what's going on. But the disappointment is coming from flawed expectations. And, and frankly, the disappointment is coming from a little bit of lack of faith. They have these words, they know what this is. We can see that there's 
an element that's not quite trusting. They think that because he died, that all the promises are scrapped, it's all done. But that's because they're not taking in the whole picture of who Jesus is. So let's move on to what the story teaches about Jesus. First and foremost, and the reason that we're talking about all this is this story teaches us that Jesus is alive, right? Jesus is risen, he was crucified, but he is not dead. Jesus is alive. Um, you know, and in, in, the, in the talk about the other lessons that we're gonna mention here, I don't wanna lose sight of the fact that he's alive. I actually wrote some of this other stuff and then I went back and I was like, holy cow, how did I miss that part, right? We gotta say this because this is the whole purpose of, of this series and the fact that we're studying what he did after he was resurrected. Um, but one of the first things this story teaches us about Jesus is that Jesus will come to those who are earnestly seeking him. So we got these disciples, right? Shaken, devastated, walking back home, don't know what they're gonna do, don't know what to believe. They just can't understand what happened. They were following Jesus because he was the promised Messiah and he was killed. You know, that wasn't part of their plan and they were confused, so they were talking about it. You know, they're discussing it. And then Jesus shows up. Verse 15 says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Commentator Matthew Henry says this about it. They and their communings and reasonings together were searching for Christ, comparing notes concerning him that they might come to more knowledge of him. And now Christ comes to them. Note, they who seek Christ shall find him. He will manifest himself to those that inquire after him and give knowledge to those who use the helps for knowledge which they have. Matthew 7, verses seven through eight says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And this is essentially what the, these disciples see on the road, right? However you look at it, they were seeking the Messiah because they were talking about it. They were trying to figure it out. They were discussing it with each other. Now another thing this teaches us about Jesus, not only that he, he will come to those who earnestly seek him, it reinforces the idea that Jesus is a teacher of the scriptures, right? Like there shouldn't be any question about, about that. We see that all through his earthly ministry. Like he's constantly teaching. Um, I don't even have time to go into all the verses in the gospels where it said Jesus was teaching, Jesus was teaching, Jesus was teaching, and that's exactly what he did here. So Luke 24 verse 27 says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is essentially like a survey of the Old Testament class, and I would love to take that class. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit too, but like I wanna highlight further the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, condescended to come down and teach two random anonymous people about himself. These guys weren't famous. We only know one of their names. We probably only know that name because he wanted to make sure Luke knew how to spell it right so he could be in the gospel. Cleopas, right? He's like, man, C-L-E-O-P-A-S. Now people are still talking about it. Um, but Jesus took the time to explain the whole thing to them. I mean, I, he probably didn't read every single verse in the whole Testament, but he, 
he's, he's taking them through the scriptures to show what it means, to show what they were missing, to show why their hope is not gone. Um, another interesting aspect about Jesus that I noticed when I was reading something by J.C. Ryle is the idea that Jesus expects us to ask things of him, right? So he comes to people who earnestly seek him. He teaches the scriptures. He expects us to ask for him. So we see this in the story when Jesus is about to leave the two disciples, right? And they ask him to stay. Verses 28 and 29 say, so they drew near to the village to which he was going. He acted as if he were going farther and they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. Uh, another commentator I read said this, uh, had they not pressed him to stay, there's no reason for thinking that he would have done so. We must not interpret these words as pointing to a piece of play acting. Without the invitation, he would not have stayed. So they had to ask him. He wasn't just going to stay and break bread with them. Back to J.C. Ryle, he said this, let us mark finally in these verses how much Christ loves to be entreated by his people. Cases like this are not uncommon in scripture. Our Lord sees it good for us to prove our love by withholding mercies until we ask for him. He does not always force his gifts upon us unsought and unsolicited. He loves to draw out our desires and to compel us to exercise our spiritual affections by waiting for our prayers. And you can see this in the Gospels, right? A lot of the, a lot of the stories that are there. Jesus heals people when they ask. We don't know that they would have been healed had they not come to him. But these people were so desperate they believed so much in the Messiah that they did come to him and they did ask to be healed. And he healed them. Um, but keeping all this in mind and asking for things in prayer, we do well to keep the words of James chapter four, verse three in mind. That says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But don't forget, right before that, he says you do not have because you do not ask. Those are things that we have to weigh. Right, We have to prayerfully consider the things that we're asking for. Prayers don't always get answered. Sometimes we have to step back and ask the Holy Spirit what it is exactly that we're praying for. Um, but again, in no way, in no way is it offensive to ask Jesus for things in prayer. Like There's a lot of verses that tell us this, but I'll choose Psalm 145, verse 18. That one says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. That sums up all of James right there. All right, so since we use an Old Testament verse, we'll segue into the next section, which is what this story teaches us about scripture. And this is the biggest point that we have to talk about today, right? But ironically, it's probably the one we'll spend the least amount of time on. Um, we've already looked at this verse, but it's so important that we're gonna go back to it. Luke 24, verse 27 says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now this reveals something extremely important about the Bible that we all say we believe. I wanna show you something to reinforce this, uh, this concept. So hopefully we have the picture up on the screen. Has anybody seen this picture before? Oh no, who said yes? Awesome. So a handful of you know what it is, but I'm gonna tell you what it is anyway. This is a graphic that represents all the cross references in the whole Bible. So if you, if you start on the left-hand side of the picture, 
the gray at the bottom, which I know is kind of hard to see, those are the books of the Bible, you know, starting at Genesis, moving all the way to Revelation. The lines are where a verse, or where something in one verse references another part of the Bible. And there's 63,779 of those. Now, I didn't count them all, so I'm taking the word of the person who put this graphic together and said that. But this tells us something, right? It shows us that the inspiration of God through the Holy Spirit is in the Bible. There's 66 books written by a bunch of different people over the span of 1,500 years, yet there's constant references to it everywhere. That many references is not just a coincidence. And that leads me to what our story teaches us about Scripture itself, and that's the fact that every bit of Scripture has Jesus at the center of it. You see the last two words of verse 27 are concerning himself. Now, Luke doesn't share the specific passages that Jesus used, but one author said this. He said that throughout the Old Testament, a consistent divine purpose is worked out. A purpose that in the end meant and must mean the cross. The terribleness of sin is found throughout the Old Testament and so is the deep, deep love of God. It's every bit of scripture, including the Old Testament, shows the love of God for us that he would send Jesus to die for us. We talked earlier about how the disciples were fixated on the kingdom aspect of the Messiah, but that means that they missed a lot of other stuff in there too. It's hard to imagine that he hadn't read, or they hadn't read verses like Isaiah 50, or chapter 53, particularly verse two, which says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That doesn't sound like a king that they're looking for, does it? In the same chapter, verses 10 through 11, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Or Zechariah 12:10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So these are all talking about what's gonna happen to Jesus. These are all the things that they weren't looking at or the things that they didn't have a place to put in their theology. But we also have Deuteronomy 18.15. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's pointing to Jesus. But there's other stuff too that, that points to him, not directly, but in a way that you have to kind of interpret. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23 said, and if a man has committed a crime punishable, punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. It's exactly what happened. It's even in the Psalms. Psalm 66, 22 says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. 
Remember when they offered Jesus the wine to drink when he was on the cross? All these things, they're all linked. So the point is, the scriptures that we call the Old Testament had the full story of what the coming of the Messiah would bring. But Cleopas and his friends somehow hadn't paid attention to all of it. And Jesus called him out on it too, right? Let's look back at what happened right before he took them through the scriptures. He asked them what they were talking about. They gave their synopsis of the story. We won't read all that. But he said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? But here's the big thing that we wanna take away from this. It's the way that Jesus approached the situation. He's putting complete emphasis on how crucial the scriptures are. How do we know this? Well, think about this. These two guys are mourning their Messiah. They're walking down the road and he comes up to him. But he hid himself. Don't you think that he, if he just showed up as Jesus and started talking to him, that they would be overjoyed. They would believe it too, right? There would be no question. Jesus himself is here, he's telling us this. But he didn't do that. Instead, he came up to him as a random person and then appealed to the scriptures as the ultimate authority, not to his own authority. And that's a lesson for us as well because chances are Jesus is not gonna randomly appear next to us while we're discussing the Bible, right? And, but we don't have to have that happen for us to believe what's written in the Bible. The Bible is and always has been the true, infallible, inspired word of God, and we have it. We have it. You can get it in a bunch of different translations to suit your needs. You can get it with different colors, with flowers on it, with a cross on it. Uh, you can get it in different sizes of print. If you have trouble reading smaller words these days, you can get a large print one. And I'll tell you what, if you don't have your own Bible, I already said it, we have Bibles in the lobby. They're free. Get you one, take it home, and read it. If you wanna know Jesus, you have the Bible. You have essentially the same words that Jesus himself used to explain who he was to Cleopas and his friend. So, I wanna wrap up all three of these things into one big takeaway, right? So what did I tell you? We have the whole Bible. We have the words of Jesus. We have the whole story of who he is. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture. Look, like I know what happens, right? Some of the Old Testament is hard to read. It's hard to understand. It can be hard to know why you need to know this stuff. And from a surface perspective, it might not seem like it's applicable to you. But as we've already said, Jesus has revealed himself throughout the entire Old Testament. All the sacrifices point to him, all the purification rituals for the priests, purification rituals for people, they show what it means to try to be perfect like Jesus was perfect, something that we could not do. It shows why he was the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could justify us before God for our sins. And those things, those things that we find so hard to read, every one of those 
shows God's love for us. So this is my challenge to you, and I said I wanna wrap up all three of these ideas into one big takeaway, one big action step. All right, so you ready? Hopefully you guys read your Bible every day. I'm just gonna assume that. And that's good. But I wanna make sure that you don't just read the parts you like. Just pick out the parts you understand, the parts you enjoy looking at. Um, or even pick out, just you know, flip to a random chapter and, and read it and call that your devotional, right? Like, that's probably not the way we wanna do it. So this is my challenge to you, and that's to read the whole Bible this year, every single chapter every single verse, read the whole thing. It's not too late. I know that sounds big, right? Especially if you've never done it before. Um, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. There's seven months left in the year. I had to do the math on my phone. But that's about six chapters a day. <laughs> six chapters a day from May the 1st through the end of the year, you will have read the entire Bible. You know what, if it stretches into next year, that's fine too, especially if you got through the whole thing. Um, because the Lord gave us the 66 books that make up what we call the canon of scripture, right? He didn't just give us the New Testament. He gave us all of it. And he gave us all of it because we need to be reading it, because we need to get into it, to understand it. So that's enough evidence to me that we should be looking at all of it. Read, study, meditate on that scripture 